we had a, a lady, retired lady GP, come and talk to us. And uh, uh, she, she'd been a GP for 40 years and uh, obviously trained fully in the, uh, all the things that GPs are trained in. And she'd got our book and she'd read it. And she said she was horrified, horrified. And we thought, oh dear. And she said, no, no. I said, I was horrified to learn the truth. And she said, um, I realized that everything I'd been doing as a GP was not actually helping people, it was actually causing harm. And she said, I was so ashamed that it took her words. She said, it took me a year before I could even talk to anyone and tell them what I'd found out. I was so ashamed. Welcome to Spellology of Business. I'm Kate Marchand, and today I have the absolute pleasure of being joined by the authors of What Really Makes You Ill, Dawnless, David Parker. Thank you so much for joining today, Dawn and Dave. Thank you for inviting us. Thank it's you very great much. To be here. It's a pleasure. So I was just commenting to both of you as you were sitting in front of the pictures of the ocean, how I was reading your book, sailing in Scotland last summer, and here we are at You've been sitting around Vietnam. Indeed. So, Don and David, neither of you come from a health professional background. And I wanted to start here because so many health professionals are terrified about what their professional remit is, what they are and are not insured to talk about, or have authorities talk about. And here you come with this wonderful book with no professional health certificate and really set the record straight on the health industry. Um, and I'm going to presume that you don't care what the authorities might Absolutely. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we were trying sorry. to, uh, you know, look for what's true um, rather than following guidelines or whatever, which obviously, you know, anyone who's trained under the medical system has to, you know, as you said, has to abide by the rules and follow you know, what they've been told to do because there could be repercussions. Um, so we didn't have those restrictions. We were able to uh, kind of ask the questions and, and be totally open about, well, how does this work? What's this about? What causes this? Why does this happen? And and really just be open. So it's even though some people think, oh, well, you know, how do we know? Because, you know, we weren't trained, but not having that training meant that we kept open minds and kept looking. In fact, that we've been told by doctors and scientists that we've talked to over the years and during the time we were researching is that we were actually the best people to do this. For the reasons Storms just said, we had no preconceived ideas. We both uh, used to, obviously, my background is electrical engineering and Dawn was an accountant. So we're used to studying. We're used to Collecting information, passing exams, we know how to study, we know how to follow the evidence. And that's all that's required, really, for any subject, is to follow the evidence and uh, don't be blindsided and um, ask the questions and keep asking the questions. And uh, that was the biggest thing. We could ask the questions, as we found out, when we talked to doctors to find out how they were trained uh, at medical school. And, of course, they didn't have the luxury that we had. They weren't allowed to ask the questions that we were allowed to ask. Otherwise, they'd get kicked off the course. Well, as I say, maybe some did ask, but, uh, you know, they didn't last too long because they weren't following the instructions. And they yeah. certainly wouldn't pass the exam. No. 
uh, at the end of it. So, but that didn't, of course, affect us. We could ask every type of question necessary, which is exactly what we did. We asked it of doctors, scientists. We studied. But, well, as you, as people know, our book took ten years to research. So a lot of uh, a lot of reading and research went into that, you know. To so we left uh, no stone unturned, as it were, to make sure that we'd got the facts, and um, so that we hadn't made any mistakes. And now that now the book's been out there for over three years, no one has been able to come back and say, "Oh, you've got that wrong," and give us reasons why. So, uh, and of course, we've talked to many doctors now, who are who also have our book, some quite famous ones that are on the internet. Um, all of which are doctors, and all agree with what we've said and uh, applaud what we've done. So that gave us great comfort to know that uh, what's in the book is true and uh, it is helpful to people. So the title of your book, What Really Makes You Ill, comes from a position of real curiosity in terms of, well, let's explore, let's ask the questions, let's prove. But what was it that triggered the two of you to even ask that question in the first place? Well, it was, um, I'll, I'll be brief, but uh, we were writing, because it's not our first book. Our first book was actually about the nature of reality, so something totally different. Um, but a long story short, it was while we were researching and writing that, uh, there was a chapter on health, and we're going back 15, 17 years now, and there was a chapter in that on health, and in particular about viruses. Now, at that time, and we make no bones about it, 17 years ago, we believed what everyone else believed. Viruses or germs, bacteria, viruses made you ill. Vaccinations were good for you. Doctors knew what they were doing. It was all based on solid science. So during our 10 years of research, we found that none of those things were actually true. So that was a great, a great shock to us. And uh, why many people still can't uh, get, to the, get to that point. So it's when we started looking at viruses that we found uh, and the first actual so-called disease that we looked at was HIV AIDS. And we realized, we soon realized that there were two camps, one, one set of very professional and well-qualified people saying that there was no virus isolated, and another set, of course, saying that there was. And straight away we thought, well, they, they both can't be right, so let's look into this. And that was really the start of this very deep 10-year dive into have viruses ever been proved to cause disease? Have bacteria ever been uh, proved to cause disease? So we had to go back and look at any scientific papers that existed and found, surprisingly, there weren't any. There were no scientific papers to this day. And we went back over looking at the documentation of over 100 years. And there's nothing then or now that proves that either of those, either bacteria or viruses, have been properly isolated and scientifically proved to cause any disease. Um, and that was a shock, but of course, it's therefore, having something to attack, having a warfare going on in our body with an invisible entity, that we therefore need vaccinations and medications and antibiotics to defeat yeah. us. We alone don't have the capability of managing a disease or an illness within ourselves without a product. Yeah, well, it, it's it's a whole warfare model, um, but it's it's also uh, tied to the idea that the human body is just some kind of machine, and it's got you know just various parts, and you can fix a part, you know, like it is, you know, like you would a car, you know, oh, this part's gone wrong, so we just change that part, you know, 
and clean that plug up and, you know, it'll all function. Um, but that's not how the body works. And obviously, you know, as well as finding out that, you know, germs don't cause illness. So we just said, well, okay, well, what does? And it led us into kind of, well, how does the body actually work? You know, because you, you can, well, if that's all wrong, then, you know, how, what, what's illness all about? How does it work? Um, and then we discovered, you know, that the whole um, basis is, is just completely wrong. So it's, but it's, it's, it sounds like it's sort of, uh, you know, a bit of a problem, but it actually is more empowering because you realize that the, the body's in, interconnected and all parts are interconnected. So, you know, health, in, health problem in one area of the body is, is not just that part, it's actually connected to the whole system. And so, you know, these are systemic problems rather than just, you know, I, I mean, obviously, if, you know, if you bang your finger and you get a, you know, a swollen finger, yes, of course, that's localized. But generally, uh, what's called disease, and put inverted commas, um, are almost always sort of systemic conditions. Mm-hmm. And so we think, well, how does that happen? What causes that? You know, what's, what's this all about? But even the medical system, like you said, is, is all about fighting. So we have to stop this process and we have to stop this and fight this and kill that bit and and thinking well hang on and if you're killing something in the body you know the body's living as well doesn't that have an effect and you go oh no there's side effects and you go no they're so we kind of realize that no they're not side effects that's a direct effect that's a that's a euphemism Mm -hmm. i mean you know these are these are direct effects and and it just changes everything and we we did find that you know there is scientists, doctors, uh, researchers, whatever, o- over the years that have been sort of trying to put this information out. But we, we just wanted to put it, put it, pull it all together and put it in one place. And, so, yeah. and we show anyone that's read the book, you, you'll see that one of the ploys we used was to show how the whole medical system, including right from the WHO down and through all its <clears throat> tentacles, uh, how they contradict themselves time and time again. And so we've we've put that in the book. So, you know, where we can show that uh, in a particular paper, the WHO says this, and then at some time later, it'll say completely the opposite. And they'll use lots of conditional words like maybe, perhaps, uh, more research is perhaps needed and all of these sorts of things, which are not very scientific and certainly not exacting when they're... Um, uh, sort of putting out uh, these sort of uh, rather draconian measures around the world based on basically assumptions and no scientific evidence. And we wanted to get to the science. We wanted to get to the proof uh, behind those statements. And uh, many, many people over the last three years, of course, have sort of joined the joined the fight, as it were, to put pressure on governments and health departments and uh, doctors to say, where is your proof for what you're doing? You know, we're asking a simple question. If we just take a virus, where is the scientific paper, particularly aimed at virologists, where is the scientific paper that shows you've proved that this particle that you've seen under an electron microscope is actually a pathogenic agent and can be spread from one person to another, enter a cell, and then multiply through the body and make that person sick or even kill them. Where is the proof? And it is not there. And not only us, but now a number of doctors, and uh, particularly Mark Bailey in uh, New Zealand, 
um, traced back the papers right from present day to the 80s. Because what they do in their so-called scientific papers is they'll reference another paper, a previous paper, as if, oh, well, my paper's based on everything that was proven in this previous paper. Well, he went right back through all the papers, you know, due respect to him. And it's not there, even when you get it right back through hundreds, hundreds of papers. So the original one they're sort of referencing, no one, no one anywhere has actually proved that we just take a virus, that it's actually a pathogenic agent, that it has been isolated, fully genetically characterized and proved beyond doubt to cause the disease being attributed to it. Doesn't exist, that information doesn't exist anywhere. So 15 miles down the road from where I'm sitting at the moment is Jenna's house. Was Jenna just a chance of it? Well, uh, yes. Uh, um, well, I mean, he was, um, I think he was just a chemist. He, um, he wasn't uh, trained medically. Um, and um, he, let's just say, <laughs> along with many other of these sort of prominent people, um, received some support from certain quarters uh, and in fact he's claimed to have um, actually published a paper um, by the Royal Society but in fact that was a, it was a paper on cookies I think um, so anyway um, it's not that that's you know there's anything wrong with studying cookies but it's he and also his experiments when you actually have a look at them uh, they were nowhere near as um, uh, convincing as yeah they were no, nowhere near as efficacious that's for sure because you know um, he was just trying out various things of putting, um, you know, basically pus from sores into people's bodies and thinking that would protect them. I mean, the original idea of um, inoculation, which became vaccination, was the idea that a mild form of a disease would prevent people from having a more serious. So the idea was to um, introduce this, you know, substance into somebody's body to induce a mild form of the disease which would then protect them against a more serious um i mean no evidence for that whatsoever but the he didn't i mean he he kind of uh, created vaccination uh, because it was from the you know source from the cow but it was based on what was called inoculation or um uh, which came is much older practice and was just involved you know cuts on the skin various different things based on the kind of, you know, an idea that you could just induce a mild form of a disease that would be protective against a more serious. And I mean, there is absolutely no evidence for that. But And in later times, of course, in later times, of course, and the medical establishment continue the fallacy today, believing that they can inject something into your bloodstream, which will then induce the body to produce these mythical things that they call antibodies and that these antibodies will be specific to the disease they've inoculated you against or vaccinated you against, and that these antibodies will then circulate around your body until that unhappy day when your body's actually attacked by one of these germs, and then these antibodies uh, will zone in on it and, and kill it. That's the basic premise that they put forward. The fact that these things called antibodies have never been seen never been proved that the body produces specific proteins, because that's what these antibodies are oh, supposed to be, proteins, but specific proteins, no evidence for it at all. So it's, again, all built on a complete fallacy. 
and uh, no scientific evidence to support it. So what you're describing there, David, is that you also asked the question as you were being as you were able to come at this so openly, you were able to ask the question: Do we actually even have an immune system? Do viruses exist? Show me. And yeah. Yes. An immune system. So many health professionals will struggle to answer that question because of their training. Yeah. Yes. I mean, the we body. Did, the we body did does. ask that. We did ask that question, of course, and again, that was another big shock, and it's a shock to most people today. We do do it deliberately sometimes. We say, well, the body doesn't have an immune system. You know, there's a sharp intake of breath from people as they go, what? Um, we say, no, it, it has a, a maintenance system, a repair and maintenance system, but it doesn't have an immune system in the way that the medical establishment tried to tell us, i.e. that it can be induced to produce specific proteins, which they call antibodies, which are then circulating around the body to kill germs when they attack the body. So that, that's the complete false premise. But of course, it goes hand in glove with the germ theory, because if you take the germ theory away, then people are going to say, well, what do I, what do I need vaccinations for? Uh, if you take the immune system away, people say, well, what, what do the vaccinations do? So these are the questions that, of course, the pharmaceutical medical establishment don't want you to ask. So they, they keep that away from the public. Well, of course, we explain all that in the book so that people can realize that the whole edifice that the medical establishment is built on, i.e. germ theory and vaccinations and antibodies, is a complete fallacy. No scientific evidence to prove it. And they've been asked many times. We've asked them, many others have asked them. You know, just prove it. It's a simple thing. Just prove what you do. And of course, we were happy to come into contact many years ago with uh, Dr. Stefan Lanker, who you may have come across, who was trained as a virologist. And of course, he said the same things. And he has challenged the uh, medical establishment to prove that there are any viruses that cause disease. He actually took them to court in, a, in Germany uh, probably about five years ago now and challenged them to... 2016. Seven years ago. Mm. And asked them to prove he offered, offered 100,000 euros, you know, so a considerable sum of money if they could prove that a virus caused measles. Okay. He went through two court cases because he eventually went to the Supreme Court and they couldn't prove it. All the papers, I think there's about six papers mm -hmm. that they put forward, which was supposed to prove this virus existed and they couldn't prove it in a court of law. And so he obviously kept his money and the medical establishment went away with their tail between their legs. But um, that hasn't stopped them just carrying on the lie. In fact, in Germany, only about a year after that really important court case in the, their Supreme Court showed that there was no virus that caused measles, the German government passed a mandate that all school children should be vaccinated against measles. Now, and then they tell us that they're following the science. Well, they're not even following their own legal judgments. And, and this is what we're up against. It's, uh, um, there's some, well, I can only call it what it is. There is a certain amount of criminality that's been going on where the public have been kept away from. I mean, that court case should have been main headlines around the world that they couldn't prove a virus caused measles, but you get nothing. The only thing you might see Occasionally, a footnote somewhere 
particularly on Google or something like that, is that Stefan Lanker lost his case. Well, what they're reporting is the first case, which uh, was inconclusive, and that's why it went to the Supreme Court, which he won the case. Well, they don't report that bit, that the fact that he won the case. Um, but I digress slightly. I mean, he's taken it further. I mean, Stefan Lanker, being a trained virologist, has shown and published the results publicly on the internet where he challenged the virology generally to prove what they did in their Petri dish and challenged them to produce a control experiment, which they've never done and never done to this day, even though they've been doing this for about 70 years now. And so he took uh, two Petri dishes. The first one, he did exactly what they do to take a sample from a sick person a blood sample or a tissue sample, which they, virologists that is, assume contains the virus. And the word assumed is to be noted because they don't know. They assume there's a virus in this sample that taken from the sick person. They put it in a Petri dish and then they add antibiotics. They add the blood from a baby calf. They add monkey kidney cells and a whole group of other chemicals, okay? And this they call an isolation. Well, anyone can see that uh, there's not a, that's not an isolation. That's a, uh, a cocktail, isn't it? It's a whole mix of things. But when they leave that Petri dish with all of those things in it for up to five days, and when they come back, all the cells in the monkey kidney cells and blood, they're all dead. And so they then say, well, you're at Eureka. That proves that the virus was in there and that it's killed all the cells. I never stop to think that the fact that they've poisoned the cells with all of the other chemicals and antibiotics and things they put in there and starved them to death because they've just left them, you know, cells require feeding and they've left them for five days, so they would have died anyway. And so what Stefan Lanker did is what he'd asked them to do. So he said, well, I'll do the control experiment. So he did exactly what they did in the first Petri dish. In the second Petri dish, he put all the same concoction in, but nothing that could be construed as viral material. There was no patient sample. No patient sample. Left them for the same period of time, and lo and behold, when they came back, all the cells were dead in both dishes. So this proves you don't need a virus to kill the cells. They just die because they're just left unpoisoned. Um, but still virology carries on, doing no control experiment and still claiming that because cells die in their concoction, and that's all you can call it, that, uh, that we, is what they call an isolation. And this is where, again, where they deceive the public. And you'll see papers saying, yes, the virus has been isolated or this virus has been isolated. When they talk about isolation, it's a corruption of the English language because it's a concoction. It is not an isolation. Isolation means I have a single thing here that yes. I can define. Yes, it's when you separate one thing from everything else. Mm. And that's what normal people understand. But D's not in the cupboard by itself without any plates and spoons and bowls and anything else. Yes, the, the real problem is that the particles that they're calling a virus have never been actually seen on their own. So whenever they say, oh, this is a virus, Virus, they have never 
seen one, observed one in nature, in, in its natural environment, which is supposed to be within the human body. They've, they've never actually seen one of those things. Um, so to say, oh, well, this, this one's, you know, this one's a certain type, this one's a certain type, or this one's a variant of that, they're not matching it to anything that exists. You know, I mean, if, if you find a new species of animal, you know, you kind of, you know, it'll look like something similar to, to something you've already seen before, but there's nothing that's ever been seen before. There is no thing that they're ever, um, they've ever found in nature, in its natural environment to, to be able to match these other things. Cause I said, oh, well, you know, it's this SARS-CoV-2 is, is like SARS-1, you know, there's sort of a similar match, but it was done through all kinds of computer uh, wizardry on genomic um, databases and those kinds of things. And so there was nothing to do with like, you know, you pick up a couple, you know, there's something else that's round and got a handle, you know, or, you know, that's another cup. It's a type of cup. It's nothing, none of that has, has ever, so and it, other... it's really nothing. That's where there's a complete absence of true Sci science behind any of this, um, or none of it is actually based on what is true science. And again, you know, that requires a scientific method, which these uh, so-called cell culture experiments are not scientific in, in and they don't follow the scientific methods. So. And it goes it goes even further as well. I mean, because a lot of people we get people say this to us, oh, but they've not only have they isolated the virus, which as we've just said, no, but then they say, yes, but they've got the complete genome of such and such virus. And we say no again for the simple reason is one, you have to have the thing to start with to genetically categorize it, characterize it which they've never done. So you can't then build a full genome of something that you've never isolated and characterized in the first place. And they say, well, we've seen it. We've seen it on the internet. We've seen pictures of it. We say, no, what you have to realize is that that's just a computer model. It's, it doesn't exist in real life. And, the same and they're way, all different colors anyway. So And, and it's, it's the same. It's just CGI. It's, it's the same crazy. with the, the so-called variants. They only exist in computers. They have never been extracted from anyone anywhere in the world. They're just computer. They play with their computer programs and generate all of this fiction. It, and I often say to people, it'd be, it would be like me showing you lots of lovely pictures of unicorns. I can show you hundreds and they look lovely. But if you ask me to show you a real unicorn, then I'm in real trouble. And what you describe in your book, which is really revealing to me was the misconceptions and lies and corruption. She can't help but see it as anything else than that once you ask the questions. Aren't just limited to virology. I certainly remember as I explored and I've mentioned to you, Dawn, when we arranged this, when I started to read about cardiovascular conditions, when I started to read your descriptions about cholesterol and the prescriptions of statins and how that's addressed, it is just endemic than in, in the whole of the health and medical industry than fallacies things are based on. Yeah. Yes. I mean, the thing with, um, it's, it's not just the germ theory. I mean, in, in our book, we don't just cover the germ theory. We cover what are called non-communicable diseases, even though they are, are trying to, um, blame certain infections for, um, but I mean, again, there's, there's no evidence for that. 
Um, but in terms of, uh, if you know, as you say, sort of cardiovascular, uh, cardiovascular disease and um, cholesterol, those kinds of things, they're what the um, pharmaceuticals are intended to do is to stop something, block something, change some kind of function within the body as if that is the problem or that is the cause. And unfortunately, all they're doing is just interfering with normal bodily functions, as I said, you know, because they're just looking at one tiny little aspect. And of course, that's why the medical system within the medical establishment, you know, you have so many different areas of specialism. So everyone's got their own speciality and it's getting more and more refined. And there is a little bit of sort of coordination between them, but not an awful lot. So, you know, a cardiologist won't necessarily know about, you know, sort of digestive system as it were. So, you know, and they are very much connected. But the thing with the um, certainly, you know, cardiovascular problems and, and obviously the whole cholesterol thing is that they use these pharmaceuticals to adjust numbers and levels and so-called normal, you know, and it, it's all about kind of getting the right numbers. But what we found is, in fact, when it comes to the the problems that are called diseases, and again, you know, we can get into that, that, you know, there aren't specific diseases, they're just, you know, sets of symptoms. But when it comes to these sort of um, different disease, so-called diseases, you know, they're, they're, they're they're looking at the wrong level that they they never look at actual root causes, and as I think we say quite a few times in the book, that you can't actually solve a problem unless you address the root cause. And the medical system never addresses the root cause; they always um, try to adjust, change, block, um, alter, prevent. You know, it's all this kind of language in order to manage symptoms so if somebody takes a particular pharmaceutical and it changes the number to something that is um um sorry about that um if somebody changes um you know it changes a number to something that's sort of acceptable um they think oh well they've solved the problem but but they haven't all they've done is just changed a number and you know and, and what are the numbers based on particularly described that you explore but what are these ranges we're taught to indoctrinated in terms of what the normal ranges are for blood, for example, or cholesterol levels. But you ask the question, well, what are these ranges actually based on? Yeah, these numbers, uh, particularly blood pressure and cholesterol, of course, because the medical system don't understand how the body works, they think that they set these arbitrary numbers, which are just based on nothing really. Um, and But what they don't realize is your body let's take blood pressure, your body will adjust your blood pressure for various reasons. Now, there may be some organ problem, for instance, kidneys, and your body has adjusted the blood pressure because there's a problem with your kidneys. Now, taking some hypertensive drug to reduce that blood pressure is not solving the problem of what's causing the body to need to increase the blood pressure because of a problem in the kidneys until something really goes wrong. So they've, they've masked the real problem and then it can become something chronic or even fatal later on. And the same way with cholesterol, the body produces cholesterol for a reason. Um, and if they give you statins to suppress cholesterol production to some arbitrary number that they've decided, well, the body will try to produce more cholesterol because so it's a battle then. They've created a battleground 
when it's not necessary. And of course, anyone that's looked into statins will realize they do no good whatsoever and they cause a lot of problems for people with all sorts of uh, what they like to call side effects, but they're direct effects of statins and uh, they have no real use whatsoever. In fact, with all the pharmaceutical products that we've looked at, um, there is nothing that they produce that cures anything. They suppress symptoms. There is nothing that in their arsenal of drugs that cures anything, not one thing. Arsenals, it's a good, yes, it's a good label because, I mean, they are, you know, really weapons against, you know, these, the, uh, the, the symptoms, the body, uh, these different levels. And, and certainly with cardiovascular disease, you know, the, the whole um, blood pressure, they are um, reducing the number that they say is normal or they change it around. Um, and they are increasingly, well, they're increasing the numbers of people uh, and at ever younger age, ages to come and get tested. And um, one of the things that, that's quite well known is that, you know, people's people get anxious if they're going for some kind of test because they, you know, concerned in case there's a problem that's going to be found. Um, so there is an, a level of anxiety, which which will increase the blood pressure probably. So the chances are it will be slightly higher anyway. And there are, you know, it, it's known, uh, I can't remember the exact sort of phrase, but it's known, you know, that sort of, Going to see a doctor, having coat syndrome, having 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 some kind of test does actually increase, uh, and again increases anxiety, um, and that that itself is is another problem as well because you know people are then uh, believing there could be something wrong. But what what has become far more apparent, certainly in the last three years, is to encourage people to go and be tested for something to find out if they're ill. When you think, well, surely you should know if you're not well or not. Um, I mean, obviously, this being tested for, well, again, the tests are completely meaningless for this so-called virus, but to, but to be tested to find out if if you have a problem. I mean, you know, it, it's making sure that people are giving away the responsibility for their health, but also not allowing people to to be self-aware, you know, to understand their own bodies. You know, it's like, well, you can't understand your own body. You have to come, I mean, you know, like the medical system, you know, we have to go to them and only they can tell us what our health status is because we aren't capable of knowing that for ourselves. I mean... Being well is the abnormal. Yeah. Well, yes. I mean, you know, because there might be something... Um, even if you haven't got symptoms, yes, there might be some. So we've got to check this, check that, and it's bringing more and more people in for screening, for testing. And it, it's—I mean, it's not about health. I'm sure a lot of people are aware. It is a, a very good business model to keep people customers, uh, even if it's just for being tested for uh, anything and everything, if possible. And if there's a slight something that isn't within this normal and again which goes back to what you were saying about these normal levels um you know if you're something you know if your numbers aren't within what's called normal then you know it means something needs to be adjusted i mean and and that just that isn't the case because there isn't i mean normally but it's supposed these normal ranges are supposed to be based on if you like an average and there's no such thing as an average person we are all different and some people, you know, might be, you know, more likely to have sort of, you know, higher numbers, lower numbers. And 
And that's fine because we are different and our health, actually our health depends on so many different factors. And some days we could be, you know, affected by certain exposures to certain things that could put our bodies out of balance. And that's really what happens when we're not feeling as healthy as we should be. There's there's some kind of um, something that's affected us and out, out of out of homeostasis. And the the thing is, the good point, the good part of this is that the body actually does know what it's doing. It does know how to, does know how to look after itself. Unfortunately, um, a lot of the time that we get in our own way or our, we get in our body's way. So it's really that was why the what what really makes you ill kind of well, um, what actually happens? How does the body actually work? What does put it out of homeostasis? How can we? you know, put it, you know, help ourselves and, and address those issues, the underlying issues, the root problems, and then start from the basis of being healthy. And then not, uh, but also the other aspect of this is the idea that any kind of symptom is seen as something bad when for the most part, um, certainly acute symptoms of things that we've often given labels like colds, flus, etc. These are healing mechanisms these are healing processes the body is actually doing what it does best by clearing out toxins you know if you've got a headache or you know runny nose sore throat those kinds of things you know that's the body looking after itself and we're we've all been oh it's bad something bad and you've got to stop it well no what's about something like NES where you're given a condition that with a sense that you don't have control over it you know your heart electrical signaling is messed up and that's it for life so be careful don't stress yourself don't ride your bike don't because a lot of people be quite aware that if they manage their weights they could bring their blood pressure down they could do something about their diabetes but it seems to be increasingly prescribed and with this sense of not having so much choice about what you can do about it sorry can you can you say um a atrial fibrillation Oh right! Oh okay! Uh, right okay! Um, again, these these are all labels, really. So um, they just try and find different labels to make it sound like there are lots of new conditions. But I mean, that doesn't. Uh, and one thing to make it clear: we're not saying people don't have health problems. You know, um, that's we're not denying that at all. What we're saying is understanding what they are, what causes them, and therefore what you can do to help yourself. So again, um, we couldn't possibly say what would cause any single person's condition um we can give them we can give people the um the type of factors that could affect them and they're the kinds of things that maybe they can address so as you say diet or whatever i mean certainly uh, and again you know with david's background on on sort of you know electrical engineering and we're exposed to so much uh in in the way of uh emfs and therefore um you know, they can affect the electrical aspect of our body. So, um, you know, one of the things would be to, you know, go out in nature, uh, take your shoes and socks off and, and ground. And that can help, you know, that's one of many things, you know, not being stressed <laughs> um, because that can obviously agitate the system. I mean, there are so many aspects to well, we what, what, what we can actually, ha- what the aspects of, of things in the environment that can affect us uh, but it's not to scare people but it's it's to understand what h- how we can look at our environment and what we do what we put in and on our bodies 
and therefore they're the things that we can take con- control of. But to help people, because we we try to simplify it, and we talk about what we refer to as our four factors in the book, when because we we obviously looked into many different illnesses, we'll call them that rather than diseases, because there's no such thing as an infectious disease. There isn't. Um, and this has been proved by the medical establishment, but they don't talk about it too much. But uh, if we have time, we can go into that. Um, so we, we boiled it down when all the different uh, illnesses that we looked at, and this was whether it was in human beings or animals, um, we found it boiled down to these four factors. Um, and that is incorrect nutrition, that people were not, you know, it's not the amount of food you eat, it's whether it's nutritious, has the correct nutrition. Um, Overexposure to toxins, and this can be in, as Donna said, in the environment. It can be what in your food. If people eat processed food, there's lots of colorings, additives, preservatives. Uh, in your drinking water, as we know, they put chlorine and fluoride in it, and there's also trace elements of all sorts of other things that come in through your drinking water. Um, so overexposure to toxicity is number two. Then EMFs, electromagnetic frequencies. As Dawn has said, you know, the body has an electrical system as well as a chemical system. And this increasing amount of uh, EMFs um, can affect the electrical system, not least of which, of course, is the heart and brain, which is very sensitive to electrical systems, electrical pollution. And then last but not least, of course, is uh, stress, prolonged and excessive stress, because stress has not only a physiological uh, detriment to the body but it also has a psychological detriment to the body and because over this last three years um, people have been subjected to more stress deliberately so by our illustrious governments and uh, establishments through the media um, through the media of course all who have got uh, a debt to pay shall we say on their conduct Um, but this has put people under unnatural prolonged stress and this has had very detrimental effects on people we know from talking to doctors in not only in this country but in the states as well we have friends um you know suicide rates have gone up so this is when stress has got so bad and young people too and it's got yes into younger people you know we're sort of talking to younger teenagers taking their own lives because of the stress that they're in so it's it, it has been very detrimental um, as I say, to people, just that one factor alone. But those four factors, which I've just, we obviously explained in more detail in the book, we found they one or more of those factors was always at play into why a person had become ill. Mm. It was never, ever a germ. But the specifics of those four factors will be different because, you know, there's so many toxins, so they could be, it'll be in different combinations. So that's why when people say, well, what is it? You know, what, what, why was I ill? What, why did it have? And we, we can't tell you because we don't know your environment. We don't know your background. We don't know your history, you know, all sorts of things, you know, but what, because of those four factors, People can then take that information away and, and assess it for themselves and then, then be able to contemplate what exposures they may have had. I, I mean, there are some that we'll never know. I mean, what's in the atmosphere, what's out there in, in the environment, in the air, um, unless somebody, you know, is analysing it, which, you know, 
some people are trying to, but that's not always possible. Um, we don't know what we're being exposed to, what we're breathing in, what we're absorbing through our skin, we often, we what's, often... what we, what's coming in through um, the water that goes into the groundwater or into um, farmland, agricultural runoff into the water, waterways that are then used for you know the water system. So it's it's I'm, it's not scaremongering, but it's just to say that it's complex. But there are there's a lot that we can actually do to take responsibility and to um, prevent those exposures or to avoid those exposures. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's with, a lot we can with do. your drinking water. I mean, there's a, a, an initial outlay whether you buy a distiller or a reverse osmosis system to have. So that all of your drinking water goes through a filter, your own filtration system. So that way you know that what you're drinking is clean water. And that's important. Hydra a lot of people are dehydrated, so hydration yeah. is really important. With your food, we would say eat uh, proper food. Don't live on processed food because, as we said earlier, there's lots of additives, colorings, Chem chemicals. Mm -hmm. It's all toxic stuff. So... You know, we often joke and say, well, you know, if you're buying something in the supermarket, if you've got to really examine the label on it, um, then you're in problems. It should just say something like carrot or cauliflower. You know, if you need to have a BSc in chemical engineering to know what's on the label, then I would advise you not to eat it. Yeah, the other thing is if you can't pronounce it, you're not sure. I mean, they're just... But Unbelievable, often, the whole list of ingredients on some of these products. But we it's sometimes say to people, you know, you know, you look at your household cleaning products, look at everything. Uh, I mean, I give the example sometimes because it's uh, how it can be surprising where your toxic exposure can come from. And I, I give the example of, I mean, he's gone now, Liberace, the uh, pianist of uh, some years ago, and um, came to, I mean, very flamboyant and wore very fancy uh, costumes on stage, I think copied by Elton John in later times. But um, he got to the stage where he was on death at death's door and they didn't know what was happening. Uh, but to cut a long story short, um, it was his clothes were poisoning him because he sweated a lot on stage. He was very active. And his clothes went away every night for dry cleaning and came back the next day. And when he wore them on stage and sweated, the chemicals of the, from the dry cleaning soaked through his skin and it was actually closing down both his kidneys and nearly killed him. So something is, which you'd never have thought of probably, that I've been poisoned by my clothes or my clothes could kill me. So it's, it's just one of those examples where you have to look at what's going off in your personal environment and take those four factors that we talk about and see if any of them apply in your personal life, um, because the one thing we can say is that it won't be a germ, either bacteria or a virus, that is making you ill. That has never been proven, but chemical toxicity has been proven to cause you harm. All these many, many diseases then and labels that are prescribed after you come with a prescription as well are nonsensical, because what you're describing is illness what you discovered as you pulled away all the misconceptions is that the root illness is the body trying to detoxify and heal itself yeah absolutely and the illness is the expression of that yes 
their symptoms and their, as Dawn said earlier, their symptoms of the body healing itself is trying to eject the toxins. So it might be obvious, either being vomiting or diarrhea, those are very obvious that the body's trying to get rid of something. But um, congestion, you know, either on the chest or the cold, so-called cold symptoms, again, the body's tried to employ the mucous membranes in addition to try and get the toxins out. But people misunderstand what's happening and then try and suppress those symptoms with even stuff that they buy over the counter from the local chemist. And of course, they're stopping the body from doing what it needs to do to get those things out. Uh, of course, through your sweat, through as people perspire, the skin is the body's largest organ. So we'll try and push toxins out through the skin. But then when boils and blisters and rashes appear on the skin, medical establishment put another label on it and label it, you know, chicken pox, measles, scarlet fever, herpes. So these are, they just put all sorts of labels on skin eruptions, which is always, it's never a germ. Uh, so obviously people may gather from that. Yes, sir. I'm saying there is no such thing as a sexually transmitted disease. There is always other reasons for it. Uh, and it's the body trying to push toxins out through the skin. Uh, and it will try and push them out. It's easy to push them out through warm and moist areas, shall we say. And I think um, scurvy is such a simple example to come back to. In terms of people used to think it was a contagious problem without realising it was a lack of vitamin C. Yeah. And... I think that, well, I've certainly found that reference point really useful. So uh, hang on a minute, what's in the environment? What else are we looking at? What's la what's in excess or lacking? Yeah. Yes, I mean, you have to, I mean, that, that the um, scurvy, those kinds of um, illnesses that were originally uh, attributed to some kind of, you know, as you say, infection. Um, but the, it rather, uh, certainly with the sailors on, on the ships, it certainly shows that uh, a common envi environment or a common factor within being within the same environment because people often say oh yes well you know why do people in the same household you know once one gets it everyone else gets it um and you say well you're in a common environment you're eating sort of the same kind of food whatever it is you know exposed to maybe whatever cleaning products that kind of thing and and even whatever is in your uh, immediate environment in the atmosphere um, so that's why you get the idea that there's a something is going around because you know different people might get it, but at the same time, um, not everyone has the same uh, exact same symptoms with the same severity, same duration. So you say, well, how can that be the same condition? But the other thing, of course, is this whole language thing of, well, I've got it, I've caught it. And that's something that's been instilled in us since we were very, very young. You know, the don't sneeze on me, I don't want your germs. And that's part of the problem because people are creating that idea that there is something they can get or catch. And this takes us to, you know, the importance of, you know, the, the, the mind. And we know, I'm sure you're familiar with the placebo effect and obviously the nocebo effect where people can manifest all kinds of symptoms within their body, all kinds of reactions, sometimes to something that's completely inert. They can literally um, believe themselves into manifesting symptoms uh, w without any uh, anything 
to actually substantiate why those symptoms occurred. They can actually manifest it because um, that there are, you know, it's been recorded that people who've taken uh, simple placebos, which is just an, an inert substance, a sugar pill or something, um, believing that, or they're in a trial and they're believing they could be taking some kind of chemotherapy drug and they've manifested symptoms that they have associated with chemotherapy drugs, like, you know, loss, loss of hair, for example, and they've manifested those symptoms, even though they were in this placebo group. So it shows the power of the mind. And that's why the last three years of fear-mongering has actually caused a great deal of harm, not just psychologically, and made people incredibly um, well fearful, but also fearful of each other. And again, that's keeping people apart when we are social beings and we should we should be, you know, together, spending time together and being yes. sociable, not apart. And that's been heartbreaking. Um, but at the same time, not just that, the fact that they've, you know, in, installed this instilled this fear and that has uh, contributed to some of the ways that people have been feeling and the way and the way they've reacted. And also the, there's quite a, this, you know, the, there's a good possibility that a certain percentage of people have manifested those symptoms of what they have read is so-called whatever it is, you know, this condition. Um, and they've actually manifest those symptoms because they believed they were going to get it so again this is you know the power of the mind is is quite phenomenal and it's like what you just said then dawn's absolutely in terms of the way people were told that a healthy human is a biohazard but what's the power of the belief and i couldn't get my head around with the vaccination campaign that thalidomide is in my lifetime now we know that why are you going to take a medical experiment when you certainly will know of the consequences of that for anybody that's, I don't know, probably in the age of 25 will be aware of what the consequences of it are. But the power of the of belief was such that any of us that were sceptical about putting ourselves or our children in a position of being lab rats were labelled the biohazard. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Crazy. And but I mean, that's a good example of mind. This, yeah. of course, is one of the uh, dreadful things that the government... Uh, in the UK and, and abroad, deliberately did. You know, they employed at least half a dozen uh, psychologists to help them uh, phrase their edicts that they put out to scare the public. You know, this this is on the record. You know, they did it deliberately. They believed that the public wasn't scared enough, and they know that if they could scare them, then they can manipulate them more. The, the people are much more likely to put up with and comply with basically any edict that the government put out if they were frightened enough. So it was a deliberate act and uh, really a crime, really a crime. And I really hope that um, in the not too distant future, there are, these perpetrators are taken to task over that because uh, it's not only maimed a lot of people, it's caused the deaths of a lot of people quite unnecessarily. Um, the thing is that people are um, generally decent and they were constantly told, like you said, you know, that they were a biohazard, you know, so they could harm somebody else just by, you know, just by the natural thing of breathing. Um, and of course, they wanted to not do that to somebody else. So they were, you know, uh, I mean, coming from coming from the right place from the heart, but unfortunately, um, 
without the correct information of, of whether that was true or not. I mean, they were made to believe that and they kind of, well, no, I don't want to, I don't want to cause harm to somebody else. So I'll... Particularly, lay, particularly laying that guilt onto children mm. even, you know, saying, mm. you know, don't hang, don't go and hug grandma. You could, you could give her a, a, a deadly her. disease and kill her. You know, what a dreadful thing to do deliberately. Uh, particularly, particularly as the people in government at the right levels, they knew very well, right from the start, that there was no viral problem. There was no sort of virus on the rampage. This was a very planned and orchestrated, um, as people have called it, pandemic, and not a not a an, an endemic, pandemic. Pandemic. Pandemic is word out. GPs cutting off. Why is the more GPs cutting off? Because the GPs are the first line of contact in the UK and in many other countries for health concerns and have been highly trusted by the general population. And they were our first line of defense in many ways of saying, no, hang on a minute, we smell a rat. Well, some did, but at the same time, you have to, I mean, yes, a a lot of them, yeah, let's say some did, but at the same time, you have to remember their training is, you know, that that there are infectious diseases. And so they were uh, held to, or or they believed in that, and they were acting according to their instructions. But at the same time, not just according to instructions, you know, that if they spoke out, their actual career worth would have been threatened. And so many, you know, some have been struck off just for speaking out. I mean, you know, there have been a few examples. So it's their livelihood. And so there's so much involved and it's not just the sort of, you know, ego and career and, you know, staying. It's just, well, you know, how do I look after my family if I've lost my job? But some of them genuinely believed that, you know, that that there was something going on, uh, even though there was no obvious evidence but you know um we had dif- uh, difficult uh, one of the uh, one of the talks we did um we had a a lady retired lady gp come and talk to us and uh uh she she'd been a gp for 40 years and uh, obviously trained fully in the uh, all the things that gps are trained in and she got our book and she'd read it and she said she was horrified horrified and we thought oh dear and she said, no, no. I said, I was horrified to learn the truth. And she said, um, I realized that everything I'd been doing as a GP was not actually helping people, was actually causing harm. And she said, I was so ashamed that it took her words. She said, it took me a year before I could even talk to anyone and tell them what I'd found out. I was so ashamed. So this is this sort of illustrated to us how many GPs must, must feel. And um, I remember, remember Dr. Andy Kaufman, who people, I'm sure, if they look around, uh, you know, we know him, you know, he's a friend of ours. And uh, he said once that, <clears throat> obviously, he came out of the medical establishment <laughs> uh, for obvious reasons when he realized what was going off. But um, he said, you know, he had to come to the conclusion that what he'd been doing as a, a doctor was harming people and he had to take the responsibility that some of the things that he'd done with the best of intentions had actually killed people now that's a forgive the pun that's a very bitter pill for a doctor to have to take isn't it you know that's a dreadful dreadful thing so you can imagine how many doctors and i'm not making excuses for them 
how many doctors must feel when they've got to come to the realization that what they've been doing for X number of years, maybe decades, is actually causing harm and not, not their Hippocratic Oath, which is first do no harm. In actual fact, the first thing they're doing is causing harm, albeit unwittingly, and deaths. So, so as well as the financial concerns of losing a very well-paid job, um, they've got to come to terms with the fact that everything they've been taught and everything they've been doing for probably the best part of their working life is actually causing harm and killing people. And uh, that, that takes some reconciliation to try and come to terms with that. But things have gone on too far, gone too far now and for too long. And doctors have really got to own up and start to, because enough's enough. I mean, this is the sort of what we think of as Western medicine has been going on for about a hundred years now. And so we've got a hundred years of devastation, really. So there's countless millions of people have either been maimed or died because of the malpractices um, of the medical system and the pharmaceutical system. So it has to stop. And that's the one good thing that's coming out of this whole SARS-CoV-2 fiasco is that it is and has woken more people up to the truth. And so more people are much more hesitant about vaccinations. They're much more hesitant about taking pharmaceutical drugs and, uh, or even seeing their doctor. In fact, it was Dr. Vernon Coleman, um, who was a retired GP in the UK, who not so many months ago said publicly that the person most likely to kill you is your doctor. Now, that's quite an admission coming from a GP, isn't it? But that's what he said. Person most likely to kill you is your doctor. So that should be a warning to people, really, is that I have to say that the last person you should go to try and cure your health problems, the last person you should go to is a doctor, you know, is look elsewhere, um, you know, because they do not have a good track record. And many, many ingenious ways that the system that supports the medical profession hides the real problems. Yes, it's controlled by vested interests, by money interests. And uh, again, the fact that it's, you know, um, what you might call the golden handcuffs, that if they speak out, that that's it, you know, they're, they're struck off. I mean, you know, there have been a few examples over the years of, of, pe of people who've had that happen to them. Uh, you know, they've been held up as an example, you know, so it's like, well, you know, if you speak out, that'll happen to you. And at which point you have to say, well, hang on a minute. What is the point of your, uh, say your job, what, what you are doing? Are, are you in a healthcare industry or are you just being obedient to your, you know, um, uh, medical institution? Um, to make money. Yes. Yeah. Um, Four points that you came to the conclusion that were the most important, just to recap the listeners, the four points that you came to the conclusion were most important in addressing your own health were related to looking at nutrition, EMFs. So I'm guessing by that, David, I'm going to pick your brains as a yeah. wiring stuff rather than wireless stuff where possible. So, yeah, well, I mean, my, my experience is throughout the whole of the electrical engineering industry. Um, and uh, so e EMFs, electromagnetic frequencies, are a 
you know, it's a common thing for me. I have the equipment to measure such things. Um, and uh, so it's, you know, something that I've sort of been familiar with all of my work in life, uh, which is uh, well, at least 50 years I've spent working in the electrical industry. So, yeah. Uh, and as I say, it's a, it's a simple concept for non-electrical engineers to understand that, you know, I'm sure we've all had the experience of uh, maybe we have our transistor radio on and someone's got some electrical, unsuppressed electrical equipment, electric drill or something, you know, and you get all sorts of crackles and whistles coming through. And that's, that's EMFs, that's electrical interference. Well, it, if you sort of uh, translate that to the body, the body's got a very subtle electrical system, you know, and so these outside electrical interference can affect and disrupt that electrical system in the body. And if it's prolonged and or excessive, you know, it can cause serious damage. You know, it can cause things to malfunction, particularly the nervous system, uh, the heart, the brain. Uh, some people complain of brain fog. Well, um, strong EMFs, and I've suffered this myself when I've been working in uh, control rooms in a, a high industrial area. And the level of EMFs have been so strong, I had to leave the control room because I couldn't think properly. It literally was brain fog, purely caused by the EMFs. And once away from it, then uh, you're okay again. Um, so it's, you know, uh, it's a real thing. And uh, just how exposed people are for prolonged periods uh, is, is really a variable which uh, is down to their environment, but something they need to think about, you know, uh, and try and mitigate it. You know, we often say simple things like um, with your mobile phone um, is not to hold it to your head because they emit very strong EMFs and, you know, always use it hand-free. Uh, if you have cordless telephones in your house, you know, and I've measured these things, the base station when you lift the phone out of it and walk around your house, I know it's very convenient, but that base station increases its output and it's, and it's horrendous. I've measured them. So, I mean, when I had them in my house years ago, and once I realized the strength of the MFs being emitted by the base stations, I, I threw them all in the bin. They all worked perfectly well, but, you know, what price help? So uh, good old wired, wired tappy phones. Um, so it's... There are simple measures, you know, if your Wi-Fi router, if you can switch it off at night or when you're not needing it, do so. Don't have electrical equipment in your bedroom, certainly not your phones. Never put them under your pillow. I know some people think that they need to keep their phone close at hand just in case they got that really important text message. Well, nothing's that important, I can assure you. Um, so don't don't put them in your, in your bedroom, you know, keep everything out of your bedroom. Um, so it's just trying to mitigate. We can't eliminate them, unfortunately, um, but you can mitigate. So that's EMFs. Um, I know people are becoming increasingly afraid of 5G because that's uh, these millimeter waves. It is a problem. And again, uh, we'll, we'll have to see how it goes. I mean, if you're unfortunate enough to be living near one of these new towers that they've put up which seem to be springing up all over the place i would recommend that if if groups get together and 
within a group by themselves a little EMF meter. You know, you can get them a decent one, costs probably £180 in the UK. You can buy them off Amazon. Um, but a group of you together could buy one and you don't need it all the time. You could share it and just measure what strength of EMFs there are in your house or if there is a cell tower nearby. Sorry, mobile phone tower. I used to talking to Americans. Um, and, and see what strength is coming into your house and then you may be able to do something about it. Or as a group, if you are being bombarded by really high levels from one of these new masts, you may be able to complain en masse, as it were, to the council or whoever to get it to shut down. So, but knowledge, knowledge is the powerful thing. And without having one of the little meters uh, to measure uh, the strength of the EMFs you're being exposed to, then it's all guesswork, you know, you, you've no idea. And you may be, may be perfectly fine. So you don't need to worry if you've scanned your house and you think, well, because there's little booklet that comes with them which tells you what the recommended safe levels are not what the government tells you because the government's so-called safety levels are set way too high and that's done deliberately to protect the telecommunications companies and the military because if they if they set the emf levels to the correct levels which are much lower then most of the military would have to shut down their radar installations and various other high-powered uh, radio transmissions that they have and uh, the telecommunications companies would also be in dire trouble with all these masts that they've put around on schools and churches and uh, various public buildings or in the high street. So they, the levels are set artificially high and I'd recommend that people have a look at the uh, bio-initiative of uh, 2015, I think, was one. It's on the internet. You'll see where there's literally dozens and dozens of uh, scientists and engineers that have got together and written the reports that they've done on EMF radiation. They, they keep updating it. So if you go yeah. to bioinitiative.org, um, there's always sort of updated information and various studies. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's ongoing. So it's, it's, it's up to date. But it, it'll give people some data if they need it to be able to tackle their local council government with hard scientific data not uh, some made-up stuff by some mp um so that's the mfs really um you know there is plenty of science look out for what we read it's not obvious it's a carrot don't touch it exposure yeah avoiding poisoning ourselves the toxification yeah and reducing our levels of in Emotional stress, and I think that one as well, given how long we've all been under such prolonged emotional stress, um, yeah. is vital everybody to address. Yeah, absolutely. I yes, think it's very important. I mean, I know sometimes in these difficult, well, yes, it's sort of the in these strange times in which we're living, uh, it might be difficult to um, to feel that it's okay to laugh. But I mean, if there's any way that you can. You know, find the joy in life. Um, you know, look at the beauty rather than the the heart. You know, the toughness, and you know, do whatever you can to sort of help lift your spirits. And that that again is is um, very beneficial for your whole health. I mean, you know, health is not you know, it's it's like health and well being. So it's um, you know, biological, biological, sort of mental, spiritual. You know, all of your all of your well being is is catered for if you can kind of have 
uh, you but know, take away, the joy. Taking away the fear. Yeah. I mean, and that's the biggest thing really why that's in our book is once people know they, there's, there's no germs to be afraid of, they're not going to be attacked by anything, then that takes away a big fear. And the government's been relying on keeping people afraid of the uh, non-existent germs. Um, well, well, not just for the last three years. I mean, the medical establishment have made billions out of it for the last hundred years. So that takes away a big fear from people. There's nothing to be afraid of. You know, your body is a fantastic thing. And if you just take care of those four factors that we've just mentioned, all of which are in your control to a certain extent, certainly what you eat and drink and uh, what you put in and on your body, and remember that you can't poison your body back to hell. So don't take anything that's toxic. It's as simple as that. There's simple rules, but everyone can do something about it. And your body will do the rest. You know, you'll remain healthy. And if you get some symptoms, take notice. It's your body just trying to get rid of something that it needs to get rid of. Don't take something to suppress it. You know, let it do it. And uh, you'll be fine in a few days. You know, drink clean water, eat good food, avoid as much as you can EMFs. And get your stress levels down. Get out into the countryside. Don't be afraid of things. Life is great. And uh, it's, uh, it's as easy as that. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this podcast valuable, here are four ways I can help you grow your practice for free. Firstly, visit www.marklandmethod.com forward slash grow. There you'll find access to the free Profit Without Pills program. You'll also have opportunity to register for the free web class, the triage call, and you'll be able to sign up for the weekly email newsletter where you get hints and tips on how to create a profitable, sustainable practice. And finally, please leave a five-star review so I can get access to influential people and speakers and bring them here so that they can share their lessons with you.